we are in Proverbs chapter 30, kind of slowly making our way through Proverbs chapter 30. I look so forward to getting to chapter 31, but we got a few more weeks in 30 um, before we can get there. Um, And then if you're visiting for the first time in here, I want you to wave at me out there if you can make some noise because I can't see you. But if you're here for the first time, wave at me. And if not, okay, hey, welcome back there. Good, good. Glad you're here. And uh, I hope to meet you before you take off and just say hello to you. My name is Pastor Kevin. Glad you're here. Um, We're going to do something that is rare in our time. We're going to open the Bible and just let it speak to us. Um, Going, continuing verse by verse through this chapter that we're in, through this book that we've been in um, as we go along. Now, you remember As we turn the corner into chapter 30, we made our way down through verse 9. So we'll pick it up this week in verse 10. But if you remember this section written by a man named Augur, we don't know a lot about him. We talked about that last week. You can go back and listen. But one of the things that we notice in verse 1, here in the New King James, this is his utterance. In the other versions, it may be called divine utterance or oracle or actually prophecy. And so what we know is that the Lord was moving upon him as all scripture is God breathed. Amen. Uh, The Holy Spirit has moved upon all of the writers of the Bible. So the Holy Spirit has moved upon him and he's given us these things that God has given to him. And just some wonderful, wonderful things. We found that this man had a deep, if you will, uh, place of just understanding who the Holy One is, and then having a respect for and a reverence for the Word of God. One of the things that we, we notice as a key in verses 8, 7 through 9, I would say, let's read that again. Verse 7, it says, two things I request of you, deprive me not before I die, remove falsehoods and lies far from me. Y'all see that? Give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you. And say, who is the Lord? Or I'd be poor and still and profane the name of God. And I thought that was such a sweet spot. We talked about this last week, coming to this place in our lives where we are so content with where God has placed us and what he's put within our own stewardship. Not wanting more, trying to go beyond what he's doing um, or anything like that so that he can have his way within us. And that's such a difficult place for us to come because of our pride and selfish desires. We always want to seek for that which goes beyond what God may be doing. And remember what I said, for the disciple, God is not going to put anything within your stewardship, within your care that he knows is going to take your heart away from him. And it's so, it's, it's, it's so dangerous because we can't see it. But because he knows us, he can. Lord, I can handle that. And he's like, no, you can't. If I give it to you, it's going to destroy you. Lord, I I can deal with, no, he knows. And when we get to a place as disciples where we yield to him as being sovereign and realize that he is giving to me that which he knows I'm able to handle, like the parable of the sowers. Jesus talked about, he gave them according to their what? Ability. And, and, and he judged them according to their faithfulness. This thing is so simple. So what I have is all that I can currently manage according to his wisdom. So then I need to grow. I need to grow and I need to be faithful and I need to be patient and I need to be consistent. And then he may put more within my ability to manage or steward. But he's sovereign. He's got his finger on the pulse. He's God and we are not. That's good news. Amen. Amen. And I want to do it his way. I always want to do it his way. So now we're going to jump into verse 10 and continue to see what 
what this gentleman Augur is going to give to us in the wisdom that God has given to him. So let's look at verse 10 where it says, do not malign a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be found guilty. There is a generation that curses its parents, or excuse me, its father, and does not bless its mother. There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are like swords and whose fangs are like knives. They devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. The leech has two daughters, give and give. <laughs> there are three things that are never satisfied. Four never say enough, the grave, the barren womb, the earth that is not satisfied with water and the fire never says enough. And so Father, we thank you today for the text that you've put before us, Lord. We know and trust that all of it is, is of you and it's profitable for us. And so Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to it, that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit, that you remove all the things that would hinder that process now, Lord God, from our midst, whether it's the cares of this life, the burdens of this world, the distractions in the room, or the meddling of the enemy. I pray that supernaturally you would remove it all. And Lord, calls us to have this, this quiet time of refreshment where we hear from you and we receive your word and that you transform our lives through the process. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, we say together, amen, amen. So with not much time left, I'm just going to cover those verses um, 10 through 16 this morning, and we'll pick it up next week and continue to go through this process. But notice as we begin verse 10, do not malign a servant to his master, lest you be found, uh, lest you, he curse you and you be found guilty. And right off the bat, this word Milan is not one that I use in my own vocabulary. I doubt many of you do. Anybody have this in your vocabulary? I know you got some people here that think they're really smart. Okay, good. <laughs> I don't use it. Um, here in the New, New King James, it says that if you have other versions, you'll see kind of what it is. The Hebrew there, Lashon, I didn't pronounce that correctly, but that's the way it's spelled. It actually means to use the tongue boldly, to slander or to accuse. And if you're reading the King James, I think it actually says accuse there. Um, it's the only, only two places is this word used in all of the Bible, particularly in the, in the Old Testament where there's Hebrew. And it's found here in Proverbs 30. The other place is in Psalm 101 verse 5 where it says on the screen in the King James, whoso privately slandereth. I like the King James. The if, just, I love it. I know some of you don't. But it gives us something. I like it. It's a little flavorful for me. So whoso, whoso privately slandereth his neighbor, and there's our word, slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off, God speaking, the psalmist speaking for the Lord, him that hateth, excuse me, him that have an high look and a proud heart, will I will not suffer, I will not put up with. And so God is saying to us that he doesn't like this. I will cut him off that slandereth and with a proud look I won't put up with. And this is consistent with the rest of the book of Proverbs because the Bible says that God hates those who have a proud look. 
And so this pridefulness is something that God doesn't want to do with. Now, it implies, though, if you look at the verse, it actually implies that the servant who's being slandered is not present. The issue is that the person accusing or slandering him is doing so behind the back of the servant when he's not there. And that is the issue that the, the psalmist is dealing with here, that God doesn't like that and that God is going to deal with that kind of person, especially amongst the body of believers. Does that make sense to everybody? In other words, we shouldn't talk about someone when they're not there to defend themselves. We should do it in their face so that they can, so that there can be healthy communication and everything can be dealt with in the eyes of all. But what this is doing is causing issues which God doesn't like. So the implication is that in private, you actually end up sowing seeds of discord, damaging the relationship between here, the master and the servant. And in Proverbs 6, the Bible says that God hates those who sow discord amongst the brethren. God doesn't like that. It grieves him when that happens. And sometimes, look, here's the reality. Sometimes with our words, we can discredit someone without looking like we're meaning to do it and, and without even having any, any uh, proof of anything that they've done wrong. Just by mentioning something that we think we see with no evidence. In other words, we say stuff like, man, I don't know about that person. How many of you have said that before? Don't raise your hand. I set you up. Don't do it. <laughs> I saw one out my peripheral, but I'm not going to look over there to see what it was. It's like, man, I don't know about that person. There's something wrong with so-and-so. I, I just sent something ain't right there. I just sent, you know, and look, maybe you do sense something. This is, this is a good place to talk about it. Maybe the Holy Spirit is giving you a gift of discernment or a word of knowledge and there's something that you are sensing about somebody that's off. And the reality is, is that the truth is that the gifts of the spirit are for the benefit of everybody, right? Okay, so then the first thing to do is to begin to pray. And one of the ways I would encourage you to pray is I say, Lord, you know, I don't know what that is. I don't know what I'm seeing and why. So Lord, would you expose what it is and bring it to the light, bring it to the surface so that it's evident, so that it protects everybody else, you know, and that's what God has shown you. So you can begin to pray that God would bring it to the light and expose the things and we can get rid of it. And it may be just something that the person is dealing with that God wants to expose so that he can heal the person and make them healthy so that they can be a healthy, productive part of the whole body, which is really his ultimate goal to begin with. He wants to heal everybody. He wants everybody to, if you will, to put down whatever they are dealing with, to be able to cast down strongholds and, and things that are in their mind, arguments that exalt itself against the knowledge of who Christ is, to be able to cast those things down. And that happens through prayer and, and really spiritual warfare at times as well when that is necessary. But what, what the scripture is telling us unanimously from Old to New Testament is that what we don't want to do is begin to insult, accuse, slander them with our tongue behind their back. James talks about the tongue just being this unruly member, this little member that just brings a whole iniquity and a world of fire. Little, the, the, the tongue is like a match and a dry forest. That's right. All the trees going to burn. So that's what he's kind of getting at. So he's saying, hey, don't do this. Now check this out. Look at the verse again. Do not malign a, malign a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be found guilty. The thing you need to take note of is, is this is speaking about a servant which would be considered the lowest 
in rank and status, which means that if he's saying this about a servant, and how much more is it saying that God wants this to be a standard amongst us for everyone and, and no, there's no respect of person. So this is at every level of how we may divide men or human beings up within our midst. Even the lowest person, he's saying, don't speak evil of the lowest person. One of the reasons why is by doing so, you damage the relationship that the person in this verse that the master and the servant have with one another. You know how somebody can throw a little hint of something about somebody and it changes your whole perspective? And, and when you do it around your children, they're not mature enough to handle it. And I've always said, I can always tell when somebody's been talking about me because their children look at me differently. <laughs> I hate to tell you, it's just an indicator. It's just like, you know, your children were really happy to see me last week. And this week, they're like, children don't do that. Unless I do something to hurt them, there's no reason for the child to love me one week and don't want to come near me the next week. I'm, I'm just using me as an example, but this happens with everybody. Everybody understand this, right? Because they're picking up on what they hear you maybe saying about the person. And God is saying, hey, I want y'all to not allow those things to happen within the midst of the body. Look at the verse again. Do not malign a servant to his master. Notice it says here, lest he curse you. Y'all notice that one? Lest he curse you. What on earth does he mean now? Um, because the reality is this word curse here is so common in the Hebrew. You can look it up. It's all throughout the Old Testament. And literally, it simply means to make light of or to despise or to treat with or bring contempt against. So it speaks of mostly the carnal way in which we treat one another when we have some, an issue with each other. Okay, but the problem is, stay with me, the problem is witchcraft and the occult have made it kind of spiritual and spooky, especially Disney. Disney has our children believing that we can bring curse and spells. And they got us thinking that. The truth is that that stuff only works within the realm of those who practice it among themselves. And, and with, listen, with limited effect on those who don't or those who belong to God, actually. It's really those who are fearful of it that are susceptible to the harassment that fallen angels and demons like to bring. Here's the example. The example is ghosts and UFOs. Neither are real, but for those who are fearful of them, the, fall, the, the, the demonic realm can really have a field day and just have a ball with you. They got you thinking grandma's still walking through the house all these years. You know, ghost stories. Man, grandma's still, she's still here. I hate to tell you. Grandma's in one or two places, <laughs> but it ain't your house. <laughs> She's either with the Lord, bless her soul, for y'all Southerners, y'all know what I'm saying, um, or she in hell. And there ain't no in between because God didn't allow it. But for those who are fearful of those things, um, the demonic realm, they play on that. And they like to play on your emotions and your fear to keep you in that state of um, ignorance, if you will, so that they can torment you and scare you into things. And the reality is, I love this. The reality is, here, check this out. No one can cast a curse on you. Amen. Did y'all know that? Amen. There is no, well, let me, let me back up. For the born again believer, no one can cast a curse or a spell on you. And witchcraft is of no effect. That's why Elisha on Wednesday night, Elijah could, could laugh at Baal 
and then kill 450 prophets because Baal ain't real. The demons behind Baal are real, but they couldn't touch Elijah because he belongs to the most high. Is everybody catching this? This is, this, is, this is good for us to know. It's very good for us to know. Um, to the extent, check this out, to the extent, then there, there also cannot be a generational curse on you. That's right. Come on. Hold on. If you are born again believer. Because how can I be, listen, how can I be cursed and be blessed at the same time? And whom the sun sets free is free indeed. So I'm creating contradiction of scripture when I believe that. I'm contradicting what this already said about who I am every time I believe this. Which means, so, so we won't throw the baby out with the bathwater though. Okay, so there is something that could be going on. I've definitely been, there's influence and crazy stuff that I've been susceptible to in my family and whatnot. But as I come to know the Lord and he begins to wash my brain and show me that none of that junk is, is real. And that's not, that's not my destiny. I got something greater now. Is everybody trying to understand what I'm saying? Here's the thing. The, the issue is when I read this, I believe that it's true. Okay? So because I believe this is true, you know what this says about me? This says that I am literally indestructible. I'm eternal and indestructible. That's what it said. I know y'all like, Pastor Kevin, where did it say that? I could give you hundreds of verses that point to that very fact. Y'all with me? I hope y'all are catching this. This is crazy. Like, let me give you one. I'm just going to just not even worry about the time then for it. It's hard, y'all. John 11, Jesus says, understand the flesh is the flesh. The flesh has, has issues. It, it's a fallen world that we live in. But what Jesus says in John 11, verse 25, I'm going to start reading, not on the screen. Those of you who can get there quickly, fine. The rest of you. Write it down because you don't need to trust what I say, but I'm going to read it. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die physically, he shall live. And then he clarifies in the next verse. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never what? Well, is it true or not? He says, do you believe this? It must be true. Well, what do you mean you'll never die? We just had a funeral last week. No, we didn't. We put a body where it needs to go temporarily, but the person was a believer. He wasn't in the box. And his wife knew that. She, I gave her an opportunity. She preached, you know, to the people that were here that night. And, and, and the reality is we, we leave this body dance, and I believe. It's like, whoa, I don't want to get too much into that right now. This says I'm indestructible. See, what we, don't, what we don't realize is when the resurrection happens, I'm going to stop talking about the rapture because really it's just the resurrection of the saints. How do I know? Because we're caught up in the air and we're changed on the way up according to all the scriptures that Paul gives us. We have to be changed in a moment of twinkling an eye because in flesh and blood, he says flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom. Y'all know that, right? So we must be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. When does that happen? When the Lord descends and the dead in Christ rise first and then those who are alive are caught up and they're changed on the way up. So when we gather up there, there's some, we, we're going to gather and our resurrected body, we're going to see Jesus clearly at that point because we can now. In our re- and then we're going to begin to realize, and what, just, what just happened to me? It's kind of like when Iron Man, when the suit comes on. It. <laughs> like, what in the heck is this? Resurrected. Then our eyes are going to be open. And then we're going to see the demons that used to harass us. 
And uh, as my buddy, one of our elders, Devon, says, he's been praying and asking Jesus if he can hunt down all the demons that harassed his family and destroy them all. Because we're going to be invincible even to a greater degree then. Like this, like superheroes. And so when Jesus returns in Revelation 19, we return like superheroes. And every, everything that's not of God will fear us because of who we are in him. It's amazing. We're thinking about this wrong. We have misread the scripture. We're indestructible because of Christ. And he's already secured some stuff. That's what the scripture says. And that's what I want to believe. So then, back over in Proverbs, as we're looking at this thing, and I, and I just keep saying this because I want to encourage you, man. You got to read the Bible right. You got to read it through a lens of faith. What is this saying to me? It's not a textbook. Because, you know, textbooks, as I told you weeks ago, they got to get updated because we find out new information. You go, he's a math teacher back here. You know, things, well, math don't change, but y'all get better at it, okay? <laughs> Science does. They discover things and they realize how stupid they were for thinking something for 100 years and realize, well, that, that wasn't true. It's, you know, they thought the earth was flat and they, they thought this and that. It was held up by an elephant or something. They, didn't, they don't know. They're figuring it out as they go. But this is not. This is eternal. And we got to look at it for what it says to us and let it change us. We got to read it in faith. Now, back over to our text. So he says this, lest he curse you and you be found guilty. Wait a minute. He cursed you and you be found guilty. So there is an implication that there is something going on here with this cursing you thing. We understand the carnal side of it, but I think there is a spiritual component to this. And I think what he's saying is because you are guilty of slander, when he curses you and you be found guilty, you need to watch out. Why? Well, because, listen, you're guilty and if he, he, let me tell you what, did, what just happened. This indicates to me that one brethren just went to tell dad about the other brethren because the other brethren slandered him. Y'all remember when we were kids and you're fighting with your, your, your siblings or your cousins? Just, I used to do this all the time. And as soon as one say, I'm going to tell dad or I'm going to tell granddad, and the other ones would be like, ooh, you're in trouble now. <laughs> That's what it just indicated. In other words, because you are wrong, that you do need to be concerned because we do have a heavenly father that is going to deal with his children accordingly. And, you know, Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 through 25. He simply said, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, this is what he told us as believers. If you come to worship, that's what he's saying. And there, while you're there worshiping, you remember that your brother has something against you. He says, leave your gift there before the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. He says, you come to worship and you realize you've offended someone. He, here's what Jesus, he says, I would rather you go make peace and maintain unity amongst the brethren than you come to worship. In other words, I don't care how good the worship service may be. I ain't trying to hear what you're saying, singing to me because you got something wrong and you know it and you won't get it right. Wow. That's, what, that's what Jesus said. We actually think we can just roll up in here and worship and everything is good and the Holy Spirit is happy about that, knowing we got some stuff that we ain't dealt with, with people that he loves. 
and he's not hearing it. He's not receiving it. This is what Jesus is indicating to us. No, I want you to, I'd rather have peace and unity than have a great worship service is what he just said. And that's now to a greater degree back in the book of Isaiah, he said that to Israel and he says, Hey, you, you spreading your hands and prayer and you're doing all this stuff. He says, I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it because your hearts are not right. So what he's saying is he would rather us get our heart right. And I think that's what worship actually requires because worship really is a sacrifice. It's a heart because in the old Testament, worship wasn't singing. It was bringing an animal and slitting the throat at the, at the door of the uh, tabernacle blood being shed. That was worship. It was sacrifice. So, so the sacrificial part of it is us bringing a right heart before God. That's worship. Y'all hear what I just said? Man, forget whatever we're singing. It's a, it's a heart that's humbled before him, a heart that's made the sacrifices of humbling itself and saying, Lord, forgive me for where I missed the mark. You know, Lord, help me with the areas where I'm struggling. Lord, fill me fresh with your Holy Spirit. I'm here for you. When we come like that, that's where worship actually begins to take place. And then also what Paul said over in Galatians, just and as it relates to how we treat one another, he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Galatians 6, 7, uh, whatsoever man sows that he also will reap for, for he, he, uh, he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. So we're being called into this thing and back in our text here that even those who slander the master's servant and is wrong at doing so, he says, hey, if he curse you and you be found guilty, that's not a good thing. And it's to humble ourselves in how we treat one another. Y'all good? We're going to move on. Y'all ready? So verse 11 through 14, with that same thought, he goes into this, speaking of this generation he keeps seeing. I call it a generation of fools gone wild. <laughs> And he keeps saying it. Look at with me in verse 11. There is a generation, verse 12. There is a generation, verse 13. There is a generation, verse 14. There is a generation. And he's going to give us a couple of things as we go through here. Scholars don't know, don't really know what he's implying because there is, is not grammatically what you would see in the, in the Hebrew. It's not found that way. So therefore, scholars are not sure if he's speaking of his own generation or generally speaking, of a generation to come maybe. We know that in the last days, Paul says there will be a generation that, um, uh, in fact, Paul said it this way in First Timothy, I'm sorry, Second Timothy 3. He says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, sounds pretty bad, slanderers without self-control, brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, Rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, fake religion, but denying its power, the power to transform lives. So, and, and from such turn away is what he said. There'll be a generation of mega churches that will have no holiness or reverence to God. From such turn away. So, we don't know if he's speaking of, of his generation, the generation to come, our generation. Maybe there's a hint of this in every generation. You know, we like to call old men grumpy old men. There's a reason why they're grumpy. They see a generation. Y'all with me? I just got to defend the old men for a minute. <laughs> grumpy old men sometimes just got a reason to be grumpy. They've lived and seen a lot of things, and when they look out there, they see it just ain't right, and it produces grumpiness. And I'm defending them because I'm, I'm sliding in that direction. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and I know, I already know where it's going. I'm going to be grumpy when I, I look and I see the foolishness that's going on in this world. So in verse 11, he says, the first thing we see is that this type of generation lacks honor, basic honor. He says, there is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. And this is an issue because this is one of the basic aspects of humanity to show respect for your parents. It's usually abnormal to show disrespect or contempt for your parent. Unless you were abused or something like that, to, to be that way is an indication of an issue within. Because we're, we, we, that, is, that is something that you would never see. For me growing up in the culture I grew up in, the quickest way to die Yep, yep, you have a funeral and everybody will understand. Everybody like, yeah, that's just the way it goes, you know. And, and this is what he is speaking to. He's speaking to this generation that we just talked about. It literally shows contempt towards its father and refuses to honor its mother is what he's saying. And this is basic. At the beginning of the law, God gives us this in Exodus chapter 20. Um, not long out of, outside of Egypt, verse 12, he says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And so this is the basic call of God. Um, and, and this is something that we all know and understand. And he's saying there's a generation that will no longer do that. It's, it, that is exactly what Paul just described in that verse I quoted out of 2 Timothy. We're headed, so, but here's the thing. So we can see hints of this in generations. And all of us as parents have spent, um, have, have had times where we've seen even hints of this with our children. Um, thankfully, God says, train them up and they'll, they'll, they'll return back to the ways they've been trained in, in due time. We know and we understand that. But we can see hints of these things begin to creep in. But the one thing that we know is that there will come a time when a generation is given over to this and therefore God brings judgment. Now, we've seen that throughout time as we go through the Bible. Genesis chapter 6, um, we saw it, Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm just skipping through a few, we saw it there, where, where, where he, God judges a, a society based on morality, and he looks at it, and he determines that there's not much to redeem in it, so therefore he judges it, he brings wrath upon it, Sodom and Gomorrah was one of those, it was infested with sin um, to the point that the men burned in lust so much that there was no turning back at that point. So he, he dealt with that generation. But there's coming a time when Jesus will return and judge this final world that we live in today. He'll remove those that belong to him and take the world into a time of God's wrath. We know that from scripture. And then Jesus will return and bring his kingdom. So we understand um, what this looks like. But then he goes on to say that this type of generation, not only that, they also are spiritually blind. Look at verse 12. It says, this is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is, yet is not washed from its filthiness. Pure in its own eyes, meaning it's been completely blinded and unable to see how far it is actually away from God and that it's headed to destruction. Paul in 2 Corinthians says that, 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 that Satan blinds those in this world who are rejecting God. They're blinded spiritually. And so he's speaking of a spiritual blindness that's upon them. And they're unable to see 
where they're headed. Jesus alluded to one of the churches in the seven letters in Revelation, and he says that they, they thought that they were doing good, but did not know that they were poor, blind, naked, and wretched. You go and read it in the seven, the seven letters. And so this is something that, that he says about this particular generation as well. And when it says here, notice it says that, that uh, there's a generation that is pure in its own eyes. God sees it differently. But it says, yet is not washed from its filthiness. Look, we're all born in sin and shaped in iniquity, but there's a washing that can take place. And we see that washing happening in two different ways within Scripture. Now, Old Testament picture is that the way anything becomes ceremonially clean is that it must be sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. Y'all remember that? There are ceremonial cleansings where they wash with water, but then to make it clean is sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. In fact, uh, Hebrews 9.22 says it this way, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, meaning that there's no remission of sin. So all things are purified with blood. It didn't matter whether it was the priest or the pan that they were emptying the ashes with that they were using. Whatever it was, it was sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice and it made it ceremonially clean. Well, the picture goes throughout because Peter picks it up in the New Testament and says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. He calls us elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in sanctification of spirit. There's a process of sanctification that we all go through as believers for obedience. And notice he says this sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Y'all see that? Well, wait a minute. Ain't none of us ever been sprinkled with the physical blood of Jesus Christ before. We ain't never seen the blood of Jesus Christ. And maybe you grew up Catholic, that juice never became the blood of Jesus. It was still juice when you started and when the priest blessed it, it was still juice. Everybody with me? Yes, sir. Not trying to offend nobody, I'm trying to help. Okay. So then it's a, it's a picture though of the fact that the blood that Jesus shed on the cross has been spiritually applied to the lives of those who believe, therefore making us spiritually clean before God the Father. I love, we're justified, as Paul calls it in Galatians, just as if we never sinned before because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that, that's good news, isn't it? So therefore, Hebrews 10.22 says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, there it is again, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, speaking of the fact that we're, we're clean. The other way, so, so yes, yeah, so as soon as our faith is in Christ, the blood of Christ is applied to our lives in a sense. Paul says in another place in Ephesians, actually, Ephesians 1, that as soon as we believe the gospel of our salvation, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So that means that all fallen angels, all demons see you, and they see a seal upon you already. That's now. That's why you ain't got to be afraid in your house of the stuff to go bump at night. So what? It went bump. Amen. And even if they manifest before, you can laugh because if you if you in Christ, Amen. you're indestructible yes. now and forever. But this is what Jesus said. Jesus indicates that there's also a daily shower that we take yes. in his word. Jesus said, John 15, three says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And so I'm trying to get my daily shower in the word. The word is washing, it's cleansing. I always tell you, a believer that's not spending time in the Lord is filthy. <laughs> but you can get clean very easily. 
You take a daily, a daily washing. Now, he goes on. I need to move on. We see that this generation that he is speaking of walks in pride and arrogance. Verse 13, he says, there is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. They're lifted up with pride and arrogance. They're disrespectful, if you will, and rebellious and showing contempt against father, not honoring mother. We already saw that in, in verse 11. Um, they're blind in verse, spiritually blind in verse 12. Now they're filled with pride and arrogance in that their eyes are lifted up and they have a prideful look at, at what they're doing and everybody around them. They think they know something and they don't. And we, we, we've already talked about the fact that God hates pride and he hates a proud look. Um, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 11, it says it this way, the lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And we know that day is coming for those of us who are walking with the Lord, for those of us who are spending time and allowing the word to wash over us. And we have to have a somewhat of a prayer life going on and we're seeking God. We're humbling ourselves before him, have not reached a level of what we would call perfection. But when you're walking with him, he shows you your pride. We've said this before and it, it is, it's, um, it's man, it's humbling literally to see your pride when he shows it to you, but it's so healthy, isn't it? Yes. He shows it to us day by day. And so he, he hits that. And then finally, this generation is led by greed and covetousness. We see that in verse 14, where it says there is a generation whose teeth are like a sword and whose fangs are like knives in what way? Well, to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. In other words, through their greed and covetousness, they take advantage of the poor, overlooking the poor, mistreating the poor. And we see that in even the generation we live. And, and what we've learned all the way through the book of Proverbs is that God, his heart is he cares for the poor, the widow and the orphan. So much so that he even said in previous verses that those who give to the poor lend to God. Y'all catch that language? We're giving to the poor, trying to help out. The scripture says we're actually lending to God and God ain't never going to be in debt with it to anybody. And so the scripture seems to indicate that when you have a heart to give to the poor, not for anything that you can get for yourself, you just see and you want to help in that way. Well, basically, the Lord takes note of that. You're literally being like him when you do that. And he's working through you because all the way through the scriptures, God has a care for the poor. Remember, Old Testament, he wanted the poor to have dignity and provision and how he worked the, and wove the law of gleaning into the law where they would always allow for gleaning. In fact, farmers were not even supposed to harvest the whole field. They were to purposely leave enough so poor people could glean. Not a welfare system, but a system where they can show up and go out there with a bag and pick their stuff, go out and work for it. So you feel like something when you bring it home, you know, it's different. All right, we're going to wrap up. Y'all doing okay? We're almost done. We're out of time, but we're going we're gonna to get verse 15 in. Verse 15, the leech. 
I used to watch the shows where they, they come out the water and got these things all over them. And then they have to take a knife and the, the cowboys and scrape it off. Y'all remember that? Or burn them off. I've only seen a real leech once in my life. My grandfather and I were doing some irrigation work and came across one. And man, I, wouldn't, I didn't want that thing on me. That thing attaches and wants to just drain you. Anybody ever seen one other than me like a real leech? Yeah, it's a scary situation. I want to stay away from those things. So he uses this very vivid picture here. He says, the leech coming out of all of this stuff we just talked about, the leech has two daughters. One's name is give, the other name is give. Because that's all it does is it takes. Give me, give me, give me, give me. That's the picture he's painting of what this generation is like that he just talked about. And so he says, two daughters, give and give. And then he says, there, and going with that same thought, he says, and there are three things that are never satisfied. He's trying to paint a picture for us about this generation, about this perspective we need to have. Three things, he says, that, that are never satisfied, satisfied. Then he says, four, never say enough. This is kind of the language, this poetic way of writing that we saw back in chapter six, where it says there are six things are abomination to God. Uh, God. No, the six things that God hates, yes, seven are an abomination. Y'all remember that? You got to catch this poetry. It's their way of emphasizing it the four things. And so what he says is one is the grave. What, what, why is the grave never satisfied? Well, because you can, it'll never be full. The longer we live, people are going to continue to die. And you think about it, somewhere between 150 and 200,000 people die every year. And, and that number just keeps growing because the population is growing. People are always dying. As I look at this, this room is filled, but the reality is, as I look at us, Every last one of us will die. Un unless the rapture happens within our lifetime, every last person in this room will die. That's something to think about. And I think, I think we are supposed to think about it. Solomon and Ecclesiastes will say that that's so important that funerals are better than parties. Because when we're at a funeral, we think about our mortality. And we, try to, and then we realize we need to get ourselves right with the Holy One, with God. So the grave is never, ever, ever, ever going to be satisfied in this fallen world. The barren womb, he says, that's an interesting one. Why? Because it's the barren woman who's always going to be filled with a longing and a desire to have a child because that's been put in a woman. Uh, notice the earth that is not satisfied with water. When you look at a parched earth desert, you can pour water on it. It just soaks it up and, it, and you can't feel it. It's just, it's that, this is a picture he's trying to give us. And the fire never says enough. As long as you put fuel in it, it's happy to burn it up. You can, you can let it sit all night and wake up the next morning and just steal some red embers on your campfire, throw another log on, and it continues to eat. So you, the fire will just burn as long as there's fuel. We know that. Why is he giving us this picture? Because he wants us to have a perspective that there's certain things that will always be upon this earth. And we got to think about the fact that then what is most important then? Everybody's going to die. All of these things are going to be taking place. But what's most important is that we have a perspective of eternity and that we realize we, 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 we ask God to give us a perspective for right now that is of him. Because the reality is it's going to be easy when we make it into eternity to be able to look back and realize just how much time was wasted. The things that we feared never happened. The things that we were longing for were not necessary. The things that we had, we neglected because we couldn't see what we had at the moment. You know, and if you could go 10 years into the future and look at the now, 
you would make different decisions today than the ones that you're making. So does that make sense? Because all of us, if we could go 10 years back, would probably do something different based upon what we now know. Raise your hand if you agree with that. Okay, well, then what's the trick? Lord, give me a right perspective today so that I can make the right decision today that will bless me 10 years from now or that I can in eternity look back and be thankful for. Particularly those of us who want to see souls saved. This should change the perspective of, of um, can I take this minute to have this conversation with this person when I really don't want to? Well, if eternity is on the line, it's probably worth having the conversation with the person Amen. and working Jesus in there. Amen. So this is what Augur, this gentleman that we have discovered here now in the book of Proverbs is trying to speak to us about. So many truths, so many things to consider. We'll pick it up in verse 17 when we come back together next week. But now bow your heads with me. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for continuing to speak to us from your word. Lord, I, I pray that it would continue to have a lasting effect, that it would change us, that it would prepare us, Lord God, even for this week. And Lord, I ask for every individual, every family in this room, in the lobby, online, I pray, Lord, that you would go before us this week, that you would prepare a safe path, that you would keep us in our homes, our workplaces, classrooms, on the road, wherever it is that we go, Lord God, whatever it is that we do, that you would give us discernment, wisdom, all of what we need, Lord God, to navigate and to be the stewards over the time and the resources that you put within our hands, that we may make the biggest impact for eternity and bring glory to your name. And I pray that for every one of us, Lord, today. In Jesus' name, we love you. We thank you. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.